Our first reading is taken from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, uh, and verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should, should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day... Let us be self-controlled, being on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Gospel reading comes from Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the one who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. 
Take the talent from him and give to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the Gospel of the Lord. I managed to um, share with Alex, uh, who was due to be preaching, the resistance to preach on the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Only on the other side of the Atlantic, I think, have I heard the parable of the talents preached as a passionate defense of capitalism. Uh, But, of course, it is not about capitalism, but about the use of our talents and gifts in the service of the gospel. Otherwise, a lot of failed capitalists will have been thrown into outer darkness by now. Bankers. Anyway, we won't go there. (laughs) Instead, Alex had chosen to preach on the passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, uh, I have... um, taken the outline of his text. He had done some work on the sermon, so I've taken the outline of his sermon uh, uh, title, both because I thought it was excellent and also because it would help uh, the Wycliffe students in their discussion of the sermon later on. I have uh, made one or two changes, in particular reducing it from three points to two points, uh, partly because I know you all so well. Uh, Alex begins like this with rather a good story. A few months ago, he experienced a crisis, and uh, I shall tell you about his dilemma in his own words. He wrote this at the start of his sermon. I was in Cambridge for an interview, and the last time I had been at an interview at anywhere near as prestigious as King's College was about 10 years ago. And in the intervening decade, my pair of special interview trousers had become less smart, uh, become a less smart suit and more wet suit. I arrived in Cambridge... And when I got off the train, the zip and button of my trousers decided to dislodge themselves spontaneously from their place. I was faced with what engulfing terms is an unplayable lie. So I did the best thing that I I could. I hitched my thumbs into my belt hooks and sauntered like John Wayne down to the nearest shop I could find, thus averting a crisis. Our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 refers to a crisis, but not the kind of crisis that leads you to edging down a street in Cambridge trying to protect your modesty. When you discuss in your sermon class, you can decide whether that story was sufficiently interesting to grab the congregation's attention at the start of the sermon. The crisis that this passage is concerned with is the crisis of the day of the Lord. The crisis is the judgment of God that is coming with terrifying certainty and bids us to place our faith in Jesus Christ and to stand firm in the light of that. So the thing that our attention is called to this morning is certainty. When it comes to a crisis, when life is a crisis, as often it is, and we are faced with all sorts of dramas just in the normal pattern of life, what can we be certain of? And what should we be uncertain of? 
And first, we can be certain of Christ's return in judgment. And second, we can be certain of the salvation that has already been secured through the death and resurrection of Christ, which we remember in this service. So two great certainties. The certainty of judgment in a crisis, in the crisis, and the certainty of salvation in the crisis. Chapter 5 begins with uh, reference to the impending crisis. The verses are unequivocal. Judgment is coming, and it will come unexpectedly with a final inevitability. Now, brothers, and about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come. To get into the, the mindset of uh, the Thessalonians receiving this letter, we need to be aware that they were a people who not only eagerly uh, anticipated the return of the Lord, but expected it in their own lifetime, in their own generation. They thought uh, it was imminent. And when we come to chapter 5 and verse 1, we note that Paul has just finished uh, outlining for the Thessalonians what the coming of the Lord uh, will be like, ostensibly uh, to set their minds at rest, uh, to uh, reassure them that those who die before Christ returns will still be caught up in the final moment of redemption. They anticipated his imminent return and were concerned for relatives who had died before that happened. Waiting for something certain to happen, but not knowing precisely what it will be like, is very normal for us. We are certain that certain things will happen, and uncertain exactly how it will be. Death, for instance. I thought of another example. Thirteen years ago, uh, I was interviewed for the job of vicar here. Uh, There were three other candidates Those of you who were around at the time remember that it was a somewhat fraught process, and this was the second tranche of interviews. And uh, after the interviews, I was told by Mike Hill, the Bishop of Buckingham, who was the chairman of the interviewing panel, I was told that I would be rung within two days and told of the decision. So I was certain that a decision would be made. Two days came and went, then three, then four, and we had not heard a dicky bird. Then my wife, unknown to me, I hasten to add, who was a headmistress at the time, rang uh, Mike Hill, the chair of the trustees, Bishop of Buckingham, who had contracted flu in the meantime, poor chap, and she told him in no uncertain terms, I later discovered, that she would not make appointments in her school like this and what the heck was going on. Still, uh, nothing happened. But by now... Of course, I was still certain that we would hear eventually, uh, and following my wife's ripping off of the bishop, I was pretty sure what the result would be. (laughs) So being appointed came unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. We can be certain of some things, but of some things we are uncertain. So Paul continues that we can be certain of the return of Christ, but very uncertain about the timing When will the day of the Lord be? Of that we do not know. And Jesus himself said that he did not know the date of his return. It was known only to the Father. It seems that the Thessalonians have asked Paul in a previous letter 
to give them some indication of when Jesus would return. It's a question high on the list of concerns for them. And you can imagine their ears pricking up uh, as Paul begins this chapter. Good, he's going to tell us when this is going to happen. But Paul does not provide them with a date and a time. And instead, he provides them with two very vivid metaphors, which are very helpful for us when we think about the end times. He says, first of all, you guys know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And that has a kind of menacing ring to it. The day of the Lord, that mysterious and terrifying day spoken of by the prophets, which will be a day of darkness and death for some, and the day that the Lord comes in glory to vindicate his people, is going to come unexpectedly and with menace. It's a, there's a threat involved. A warning is involved. And the image of the thief in the night has got a singularly end-of-time ring to it. Uh, Jesus uses it himself to refer to his own return. His own return will be like a thief in the night. Paul must have been very well aware of Jesus' own words. So the day of the Lord will be unexpected, and it will be the return of Christ at the end of time. And in verse 3 of uh, chapter 5, Paul uses a different metaphor. He says this, while people are still saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When people are speaking about peace and security, destruction will come upon them like labor pains. Now, the metaphor of childbirth has got a double edge to it. On the one hand, there is the element that this is the onset of something uh, unpleasant, with intensity of feeling and with an inescapability of, out, of, of the outcome. And the idea of the end times being like birth pains is, of course, quite a familiar biblical theme. Romans 8, for instance, talks about the creation groaning as a woman in, child, in childbirth. So whether you are an expectant parent or have been, or I might add a, a grandparent, which has been a common experience for Sue and me this year, There is in such times both huge joy and anticipation and also, of course, fear. Will something go wrong? Some of us us here have been through this uh, very recently indeed. The day of the Lord will be joyous for some and appalling for others. The two metaphors are intended to cause alarm. The day of the Lord will come unexpectedly with destructive power, with irreversible consequences, And it is also the final act in which God shall be glorified and his people vindicated. We don't get higher stakes than that. So the certainty of Christ's return, but the uncertainty of when it will be. Secondly, and quite quickly, the certainty of salvation, the certainty of our status in Christ when that great day comes. The Thessalonian Christians are not in the position of those who will be destroyed at the end of times. That is what Paul wants to reassure them of. They are children of the light, he says, children of the day, not children of darkness. He's writing this to encourage them and strengthen them. It's very evocative language that he uses. You are all sons and daughters of the light and sons and daughters of the day. We don't belong to darkness. 
We belong to light. So this great day is a day for us to look forward to. It's the language of polarization, if you like. It's the language of of the great sifting out that we're taught to associate with the end times. At the end times, the good go one way and the bad go another. It's common, actually, in most religions that they have that idea that something happens by way of separation uh, at at the time of death. But there is one great distinctive in Christianity, and it's one that Paul emphasizes here, that in, in Christian teaching and Christian truth, the great divide of the last day has already taken place. It has already happened. Paul says that they are currently now children of the light. It's not that they will be identified as children of day and children of the light at the day of judgment. It's not as if you're going to get as a Christian to the day of judgment and hope that it's going to be okay. Absolutely not. The current reality is that we are saved. We are now children of the light. We have assurance of salvation. Christians are on the good side of the divide already. It is, as if, uh, it is as if the doctors have given absolute reassurance to the mother that her baby will be perfect. Your baby will be perfect, the doctor can say. But of course he can't say that because he doesn't know that until the baby is born. And the very first thing that happens when a baby is born, as all of us I'm sure are aware, is that they whisk the baby away to check that it is okay because they don't know until that moment whether the baby will be okay. It was a very traumatic thing for us with our very first child because she wasn't okay. As many of you know, our eldest, Anna, was mildly brain damaged at birth. And there was a very traumatic moment when you're waiting for the birth of your first child. And she arrives, she looks perfect. They take her away and they say, I'm afraid she's not. There has been damage. A great moment of anticipation is spoiled by the uncertainty of what the outcome will be. But God does give assurance to his believer, to his people, to those who are in Christ, that on that day we will be perfect. We will be perfected. It is already decided because of what we're remembering in this service today. Because our salvation does not depend on us being good enough, but on Christ's death on our behalf as our substitute on the cross. Christians possess a new status And because of this new status, Paul urges the the Thessalonians, as he closes the passage, to let it affect how they behave. Their status, your status, my status, as a child of of God en route to heaven, makes a difference to how we behave now. If you like, our status determines our ethic. It's not that our ethic determines our status. We don't have to be good enough for heaven But because we're forgiven and made children of light, it should make a difference to how we live now. And he lists some familiar examples of how they should be different to the pagans around them. They should be self-controlled as opposed to pagans who are controlled by their appetites. They should be loving rather uh, than selfish. They should be faithful instead of promiscuous. They should be active in Christian service, fully equipped with the armor of God, to fight the spiritual battle into which we are all called. So this call to godly living arises out of the, from the fact that God lives and acts on our behalf in Christ. That is what we're remembering this morning in Holy Communion. 
We recall in this service that He died for us, verse 10 of this passage. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. That's what we're remembering here. So that we are nourished by His Word uh, in order to live for Him as we anticipate His return. The certainty of Christ's return at an uncertain moment in history and the certainty that faith in Him secures our salvation. These things enable us to live boldly for Him today in what is, of course, a very uncertain world. Great certainties amidst the uncertainty. Let's pray together. In this Advent season, uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, your great promise that this is not a meaningless world going round and round, not heading anywhere in particular, but history has a beginning and an end, uh, that we are moving towards that great climax when you uh, will return as King and Lord, and, and every, every knee will bow to Jesus. Uh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that these promises are certain and true. Uh, And we thank you that our salvation is secured because of the cross. And we pray that you would help us to live as those who are children of light. Help us to put away the works of darkness day by day and to walk in love and faithfulness and self-control, kindness, goodness, patience. Help us to be the people that you want us to be. And may your kingdom come. Amen.